Okay, we're going to be looking at Matthew 25, and as usual, we're going to start and stand and say the Shema together um, uh, to declare our openness to God, and that our ears, our minds, our hearts would be open to changing by the words and teachings from the Scripture. So let's read this aloud together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, and with all your might. Amen. All right, you can be seated. Matthew 25 um, has a lot of stuff going on, and it's related to uh, the afterlife or the end times, I guess you could say. Um, and it, it does make us think differently about the current times and our current life. I think you know, this is, this is somewhat crude overview of how I think Christians and Jews view the afterlife and what happens when you die and why does that happen. What I might suggest, I think this is a little less true at Otter Creek, but I think this is true broadly for, I think, the culture I grew up in for church, which is the South Church of Christ culture. And you hear a lot about the big focus is on the afterlife and where you go when you die. I think that, you know, again, I know I'm missing a lot there and there's some, a lot of big caveats. I think that's maybe broadly true for the Southern Church of Christ culture. Judaism, I think, is very different. And they are focused on the current life. How do you behave now? What is your posture towards God? And what is your posture towards your neighbor? And the afterlife is not totally not aware of. It's not that it's not cared for. It's just less of a big deal. And if anything, what you see in um, rabbinic uh, teachings and writings and culture is that the kingdom of heaven has come down here. Um, and you see that kingdom breaking in, um, or the presence of God breaking into earth in this sphere of existence. You kind of see that in the Torah, um, especially in Exodus, as God comes in to rescue his people from Egyptian bondage. So then Matthew 25 um, helps bring into our awareness how does Jesus, a Jewish teacher, view the afterlife. My take is he really doesn't discuss it that much or as much as maybe you would think given he's the Son of God who came down from heaven. I would say when he does talk about heaven and the afterlife, what happens maybe after you die he discusses it as, what are you doing now in the current life? This, this is where it all comes back to. And he talks about the kingdom of heaven is among you, not, hey, you're going to go to heaven when you die if you do these things. That's not really how he talks about it. He really dis his message is often summed up, similar to John the Baptist. Hey, the kingdom of heaven is among you. Repent. Change your mind. Change what you do. 
So, I think then, the cla- this class, hopefully, it won't finish the job, but it will help us get a little bit better understanding of how Jesus, the rabbi from Nazareth, thinks about the afterlife. Okay? So, there's so much in here that you really can't do it in depth. There's three big stories. Uh, well, two parables. One, I don't, I don't really know what you would categorize the last one as. So, the first one, um, the ten virgins. Um, the groom has been gone. He's coming back to take his bride. Um, and they are apparently are supposed to be waiting on the groom to come back. And um, it says this in verses 5 and 6. While the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Um, And so... You know, they're sleeping, they're waiting, and now they hear the, bride, or the groom is coming. Now everybody has to get ready. And remember, five of them were wise, five of them were foolish. The five wise ones, their lamps, they had oil ready to go so that they had the light in the darkness to know where to go and how to respond. The five foolish didn't have enough, and they went to the wise, and the wise said, now is not the time, we don't have time uh, for this, so... Um, you know, go find your own, of course. And they go, while they're out trying to find the oil, uh, at that point, it's too late. They weren't ready. Now, this, uh, I think this phrase is interesting here. At midnight, a cry was heard. This is interesting language. And again, Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. All his teaching is based on the text of what we would call the Old Testament or the Torah. So I think if you want to understand what Jesus is teaching more clearly, what he wants from us more clearly, you've got to go to his source, his Bible, which was the Old Testament. And in Exodus 12, which is the story of the Passover, it says, it came to pass at midnight, that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, and there was a great cry in Egypt. Now, why bring this up? Jesus was in Jerusalem at this time. He was teaching in the temple. And why is he in Jerusalem? And why is he in the temple? Right. It's It's the time of the Passover. Jesus is there for Passover. And he is at the temple because he is our Passover lamb. Now, put it in context this way. The priests had to inspect all lambs to see if they were pure and without blemish. And in this time, the Sadducees are in charge. You basically had to buy your lambs from them at the temple. If you brought your own, they were probably going to say, there's a spot, it's unclean, it's not perfect, you're going to have to buy one from us. Now, that's both 
It, it was a bad system. It was a corrupt system. The Sadducees had a monopoly. It was a toll bridge. And they collected a lot of money through this uh, operation they were running, selling lambs uh, through the temple that they controlled. Where it's not all bad is that the priests were supposed to inspect the lambs. And the lambs were supposed to be perfect and without blemish. I think what you see in the Passover weeks or week that is told in the Gospels. The authors are trying to say Jesus is a lamb and he spends time in the temple being inspected by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and other uh, teachers of the law. So Jesus is going through his inspection. And remember, all the Gospel writers, I think, at least more than one, says... After their questioning, they stopped because they couldn't find any fault in him. Jesus is the pure, unblemished, totally clean Passover lamb who goes to the temple to get inspected. And Jesus becomes our Passover lamb. So, you know, I I think one thing that this story points out is... Um, you know, the five wise, they had the oil in the lamp ready to go before it happened. They were prepared, and it takes time to get prepared. In the same way, it does take time. It took the Israelites time to get prepared for the Passover in Exodus. You couldn't just put it together real fast. You had There was a process. You had to do it all. And it was the first of the ten plagues where... They had to participate and do something. In the first nine, God just did these powerful and amazing wonders, and the Israelites got to sit back and watch and uh, not enjoy it, but they got to sit back and watch in wonder. But on the tenth one, God draws them in a little bit more by saying, you have to do these things to be prepared. If you don't do them, you will be struck down. And I think that's a little bit of what this first parable of the foolish and wise virgins is. The wise were prepared. Um, I, I, I think last time I quoted him, I'll talk about him, I'll quote him again here, but Warren Buffett always says, predicting rain doesn't count, building arcs is what counts. You got to do the work, you got to be ready. It doesn't mean you don't trust in God, but you ha- we have a responsibility, and that's a big deal in Judaism is you have a responsibility to do something amidst, alongside having trust in God doing something. I've heard uh, one story of a Jewish rabbi. He told his disciples, you know, when is the right time to repent? And his answer was, the day before the Lord comes back. And so the disciples then asked the question, how do we know when he's coming back? And he said, you don't know when, so you might as well do it now because you don't know when. Again, you can't get prepared right before something. You start preparing way early. Um, So I think that's um, one of the key um, takeaways from the story. There's so much more, uh, but I'll pause there if anybody else has thoughts on this story before we move to the second segment of the chapter.
ideas, thoughts, questions. Yeah, I mean, this story is very, everyone understands this story in their culture because uh, you guys just got married. What happens on the marriage night is the negotiations are going on. So you never know when the bridegroom is showing up. So everyone, if you're uh, the bridesmaids, they, they know they may be there all night and the groom shows up because the families are still negotiating out all the stuff that's occurring. And so it's not like they were surprised. You know, th this is a, a thing that happens every way. They would, you know, they would, once the deal is settled and all the aunts and uncles sign off, then the bridegroom comes and gets the bridegroom, the, the bride. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, th this was a story that they'd be totally familiar with that, you know, the bridegroom does not come at 6 p.m. every night. He comes when the deal is done. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and there's some aspect to it. It's, I thought about talking about this. I just didn't think we had time. But to briefly hit on it is the groom, after part of the or the early negotiations, goes, after that's happened, he know, they know they're going to get married, the groom goes to his father's house, away, wherever it is. The bride stays back wherever she is. The groom then starts building onto his father's house for him and his wife to live. So the families live together. So the groom builds a room for his bride. And he says, I'll come back for you. But in my father's house, there are many mansions or there are many rooms. So, that's, so what is Jesus saying? Well, it's the same, same sort of imagery. So you see it overlap here where... When's the groom coming back? Well, we know he's coming back, but we don't know when. So you've got to be ready for that time. And so that's kind of what you see, what you see here. Similar type um, uh, cultural tradition or activity when John talks about, I'm not the bridegroom uh, kind of deal. Um, so, yeah, it's, there, uh, there's, there's so much more, and it is... It is fascinating, the cultural context, because it's not foreign. It's not a made-up illustration. Everybody would say, yeah, we've done that. We've seen right. that done. Anyway, it's just, you're, you're seeing the reflection of what Jesus is about to do, <laughs> mm -hmm. which is he's about to go to his father's house. And then he, he's been telling them, I'm coming back to you. I'm coming back to you. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, so really he's literally, this little story alone just reflects it. I'm going to my father's house. I'm going to, I'm going to room for you. Mm -hmm. And when I come back, I'm coming for you. Yeah. And uh, as one who builds houses, sometimes it takes a while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's exactly right. Um, okay, so the second story, the parable of um, the talents. I. This story has been done so much. There is very little new to say. And there's obviously the quick word association of, oh, talent back then. Well, we used the word talent for this, so we'll put them together. Now, that's somewhat good and somewhat not, um, but, it, but it, is a, it is about stewardship and fulfilling your responsibility, right? S similar thing. You have a responsibility. The current life is what matters in a sense. The afterlife we can't know, but 
the afterlife is determined by what you do in the current life. So, now, the talents, a talent is worth a lot of money. I've heard different measurements from different people on how much a talent is worth in that day and time. But it's a big amount of money. One talent means you, you're pretty rich. You got a lot of money. So, this master is leaving all three of them with a lot. Two are successful, one is not. Uh, the one who does, is not successful, it's not that he goes out, does some venture, and fails in his business. He just buries it in the ground and doesn't take responsibility for what's been given to him. And again, I come back to the context of the teachings. Right? Jesus is in the temple mostly talking to Sadducees. The Sadducees control the temple. They were corrupt. They had a lot of money. Very wealthy. Josephus, the Jewish historian, also talks about how corrupt this basically mafia was, how much power they had, and how much money they had. And I think, if you think about the audience, Jesus is specifically calling out the Sadducees, who had a lot of money that they were in charge of, and they are wasting away uh, their own responsibility and duties to manage money well. Um, and by managing money well, I think, again, it's not so much, you know, what are your returns, you know, as much as taking responsibility and doing good with the money for the poor and the brokenhearted, which we see in the next story, um, it's not so much are you getting wealthier, but are you doing things with your money that make a difference in people's lives around you? Sadducees weren't doing that for sure. Again, I've said this a couple of times, the Pharisees, this is where hindsight is not 20-20, the Pharisees were really good people. The majority of Pharisees were good people. You would want to be a Pharisee. There were a minority who were hypocrites. Jesus criticized those. The Sadducees were the opposite, where most of them were not good at all, had a horrible sense of ethics and integrity, broke the Torah, um, abused their position of the priesthood, and exploited it for themselves. Then this, there were a minority of priests who were good people. Again, this is why in Luke, John the Baptist's father was a righteous priest. Why that seems redundant? Well, it's not in that day because most of the priests were not righteous. John the Baptist's father was a righteous priest. We got to make sure we point. Luke says we got to make sure that's pointed out um, and do not lump him in with the rest of the Sadducees. So, again, Jesus is in the temple talking to the wealthy priesthood, um, and again, ultimately in this story, the master. Um, tosses out the one who buried their uh, money in the ground. Um, Jesus does a similar thing um, in Matthew 24, the chapter before this. Um, well, that's the parable of the fig tree. Um, that's the parable of the fig tree versus when he 
um, destroys the fig tree. Do you remember this? It's kind of an odd story of why would he destroy the fig tree. And in that day, um, olive trees and um, vines for, for grapes and wine, those tr- everybody had multiple, well, most people who had homes had olive trees and, um, you know, a small vineyard kind of in their, in their homes, uh, multiple of those, and then maybe one fig tree. A fig tree took a lot of work um, and a lot of preparation to make it grow. And the illustration, uh, the word picture for them was the, uh, the olives and vines represented the Jewish people. They represented everybody and all of us. Whereas the fig tree represents the leadership uh, of Israel. And at that time, the leadership was the priesthood. And Jesus comes along and he sees the fig tree. It's not producing any fruit. And with his words, he destroys the fig tree. Remember this? It's odd. It's an odd story if you don't know this context. When the disciples see this happening, they go, oh my goodness, so... For us, that fig tree represents the Sadducees, the priesthood. And he just destroyed this tree with his words. And then he goes to the temple, and the Sadducees question him again and again, and he silences them every time with his words. So again, so I think the picture is a little bit carried on a little bit further here that the Sadducees, again, are wasting the large amount of money that God has blessed them with. Um, okay, I'll, I'll stop there too at the end of this one. Any other thoughts, questions? Yes? It's fascinating. You talk about the righteous priests of the Sadducees. You go today. And you guys, I don't know you guys. I've been here for 11 years. And every time I come in here, I learn something. I don't know Y'all are amazing, by the way. Because I come out of Catholic, I don't know any of this stuff. So, you know, the idea of righteous priests just fascinating. Everyone thinks their time is the worst of all. We we are living. We got Trump. We got all this crap. We are just we're going to hell in a handbasket. But if you study, and I don't know, I'll tell you all this, you don't know that I do, but if you look back in history, the 60s, the 50s, the 20s, it's everybody had that we're in the worst time. The, the, the horrible priests, the Sadducees, the worst corrupt priests. And we have, we have the literal priests doing abominable things you know, for generations. And then we have false evangelists doing abominable things. Anyway, just, I don't know, y'all know that I just think it's fascinating the word used righteous priests is constructing kind of mm-hmm. We are zero, no different than they were. Mm-hmm. Am I right or am I missing something? Exactly. Right? Go pointing right. fingers. I love the fact that uh, the Sadducees actually ran a bank out of the temple where you could loan money. In the Torah, you're prohibited from, you can loan money, but you can't charge interest. To your brother. To your your brother. The Sadducees charged tremendous amounts of interest, and they would they would take people's land, uh, and that's why you know even the story. He says 
Jesus says, well, you could have put my money with the money lender and got some interest. So he's actually going against the law of the Torah, but just tells you how prevalent it was in that day and time mm-hmm. that everyone knew, yeah, it's actually good law. Uh, they're going to they're charge you interest. They're supposed to take, they're supposed to be the priest taking care of you. And instead, they're going to take your stuff. The whole, the whole corruption of the whole early popes doing the same, selling um, sainthood, and it was exactly what said they were the Sadducees of, of uh, coming out of, the, of, out of that tradition. But mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's a thing of you know power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know the Sadducees controlled everything, and so you just see the generation of generation getting farther and farther and farther from what the Torah lays out. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, as we talked about last week, you know, when the, the disciples want to know, when, when's the end coming? You know, and Jesus tells them, and they, they don't believe them, but after 80, 70, they look back and go, oh, that's what you were saying. Mm-hmm. You know, because after 80, 70, Sadducees no longer exist. Because everyone else ran away from Jerusalem. All the Sadducees came, ran to Jerusalem. And like we said over and over again, the Romans don't care what you do, but you better pay your taxes. And they didn't, and they just leveled. They leveled Jerusalem, mm-hmm. and all the money that the Sadducees gathered, uh, the Roman soldiers took. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I said, there were stories of when they burnt the temple. There was so much gold in the temple that it was running liquid out of what is now the Wailing Wall. You, there was actually gold coming out between the stones. And the Roman soldiers were taking their helmets and collecting liquid gold from the fire. How do you know that? Oh, Josephus tells us. Although, to be fair, Josephus is a Pharisee. So, right, which, again... He does not like the Sadducees, right. but that probably was a very true story. Right, the Pharisees disagreed strongly with the Sadducees, because, again, these were good people. So they, yeah, they very much did not like the practices of, I mean, multiple things. The Sadducees had pushed, there is a part in the temple that was supposed to be for the Gentiles. They had, during these times, extended the marketplace for selling the lambs, which was not all bad to be selling lambs, actually, but that they, the problem when Jesus clears the temple isn't so much that they're selling lambs, but that they had pushed the Gentiles out and they made no room for the outsiders. And there are strong allusions in there to Isaiah, where Isaiah writes about God including the Gentiles in this big work he's doing. And the Sadducees, they, the way they controlled the temple and extended the marketplace so that there was no room for Gentiles. So that's why Jesus clears the temple. Anyway... Yes, there's a lot there. I see the Essenes on the wall. The Essenes also hated the priesthood. They saw themselves as the righteous priests. And they went into the desert to prepare a way for the Lord. Again, totally true to Scripture. Uh, The Essenes Essenes were extremely devoted to all the Scriptures. They would make all of us think like, well, yeah, we, it's almost as if we don't, that seems to probably say you don't believe in the Bible because you don't read it that much. And they read it again and again and had all sorts of great and some wrong uh, interpretations. But anyway, so 
the talents. Hopefully that, I, I don't know, I, that was maybe a unique insight to me that I had, um, that I had not considered before. Um, maybe it's a little incremental to what we've already known. Okay, so then the last story. The Son of Man will judge the nations. This is another well-known uh, I don't know if it's, I don't know if you'd call it a parable really, because it's not, um, I don't think it's a prediction necessarily. It's not a parable because it's not a made up story, but it is an illustration and a picture for us to, to latch onto. It is pretty easy to remember, which is good. Okay, son of man in that time normally means human, just person. We would be. Son, son of men, son of man, whatever. But son of man sometimes means Lord. And I think you've got Jesus, the Messiah, kind of laying it out at the beginning, his, both his humanity and his, um, his godness, his lordship, kind of in the beginning. That the son of man will come back to judge everybody um, and again to not to judge what they've done with their life. How did they manage their talents? Was their lamp uh, ready for when the bridegroom came back? And then it says, he will, sh- he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Some cultural context there is shepherds who have Sheep. The sheep will follow almost single file um, behind the shepherd, wherever the shepherd goes. That's how sheep work. They're, they're locked onto the sheep in front of them, sheep in front of them who's locked onto the shepherd. And that's how sheep follow. Goats, it's different. Goats, you look on a hillside, they're not in single file. They're scattered across the hillside. Everybody's kind of doing their own thing. All the goats are kind of doing their own thing as they follow the shepherd. And I, you know, so what's Jesus saying here? You want to be like a sheep following the shepherd. Follow the, know the Torah and follow it. Uh, whereas the goats uh, kind of do their own thing. Maybe they're not totally off the ranch, but, you know, I'm with the shepherd, but I'm going to go over here too. I mean, I, I think that's a, what a tremendous picture for us in our life. How do we follow Jesus? Do we follow, kind of know the Bible, don't spend too much time in it. I believe in giving some money. I don't know how generous, I don't want to be too, you know, we always kind of look for the excuses, uh, the asterisks. It's, I mean, it's a real challenge, right, for all of us weekly. So I think uh, a great illustration there that Jesus uses. And then... I think it's interesting that both groups, the righteous and the unrighteous, the sheep and the goats, neither of them knows that they're interacting with the Son of Man or the Lord. When they see the poor, the thirsty, the hungry, the imprisoned, neither of them knew. When did we see you like that? You know? So the question isn't, well, well, it's a tough question about how, how do you view life and what is your understanding of who God is? 
Neither of them saw the Messiah in the suffering ones. The Sadducees did not see Jesus, the suffering rabbi, as the Messiah. Now, from the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, it says, Now we see in a mirror or a lens dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. A lens in that day, not too different than now, uh, is used to make things in the distance a lot clearer so you can see them better. That's a mirror or a lens, however your Bible phrases it. And also in Jewish tradition, Moses is seen as the first and greatest of prophets. We'll look at this in a minute. But Moses is the greatest of prophets. And in Numbers 12, there's kind of a riot from Aaron and Miriam, Moses' brother and sister, about his leadership. And they're questioning what he's doing. And then God comes in and he says, if there's a prophet among you, I make myself known to him in a vision. It's not so with my servant Moses. I speak with him face to face. Even plainly. Or it says in... Uh, One version I read, appearing, is another uh, way to look at that word. Even appearing, and he sees the form of the Lord. He sees the Lord face to face. Moses is different than the other prophets. He gets to see the Lord face to face. It's very direct. Um, And in in Deuteronomy 34, Moses... The servant of the Lord died. And Moses was 120 years old. His eyes were not dim. But since then, there has not arisen a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Now, this is the interesting thing to me. Because Moses is the most humble man that had ever lived prior to Jesus. We talked about early on that Matthew portrays Jesus as the new Moses. In Deuteronomy 18, it, God says, I will, send a, I will send a prophet to you that will rise up from among you who will go forth and do things like Moses. Okay, so this new prophet like Moses, I think Matthew is trying to say, Jesus fulfills this. And Moses sees God and interacts with God face-to-face. So he's not in the distance, but he is face-to-face, close interaction. And I think what Paul is alluding to in 1 Corinthians 13 is when you love each other, God goes from the distance and he comes very close. And I think what Jesus is saying in Matthew 25 in this third story is that God is not far from you, but God is humble like Moses, that Jesus is humble like Moses, and he is around you in the hurting and the suffering uh, that, you know, that he points out all these examples in Matthew 25. So it is, he is questioning, how do you view others? Uh, how do you view the stranger, um, the people who are less successful, who have had bad luck in life, who have made bad decisions um, and are suffering because of them? Are you willing to reach out and help them? When you do that, it's like a lens where you bring God from a distance up close. Um, And so, in some ways, this is a call to be like Moses. 
you have a chance to know God face to face. You don't have an excuse. Uh, he, is, he is around you in the hungry and the thirsty and the imprisoned and the sick, etc. Um, I think Otter Creek does a great job of this, really, um, through all the different ministries and then just the normal or the week-to-week life as people step up and help each other. Okay, there are questions for us and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open it up for however much time we have left. It does question how humble are we? These stories do. They question our own humility. Um, and then it questions, do we see Jesus in others' suffering and do we see it in our own suffering? Um, or do we trust that the suffering reveals Him even when we don't see it, maybe, is a better way to say it. Because... Um, you know, it's, you know, when things are going wrong or hard or they're tough, you're not thinking like, hey, I, I see Jesus. This is great. Like, that's not how it feels, right? And it definitely, well, you just don't see him. It's not very clear. So you, do you trust anyway? Um, okay, that's all I had prepared. So what, what other thoughts, uh, questions, or ideas does, does this spark uh, in you guys? Any of, any of the stories, this one or any of them? The one thing that we have a lot of problem with, because we are such a non-hierarchical society, speaking of Americans, is the face-to-face part. Because when you think, you know, Jesus, God is king. And we don't, you know, for example, if uh, the president walked in this room today, none of us would prostrate ourselves before him, right? If he asked us, how am I doing, almost everyone in this room would tell him how he's doing. That's not how that occurred in, in that culture. When you walked in front of the king, in front of Caesar, you were flat down on the ground. And if he told you you could get up, you could get up. Most of the time, he would tell you what he wanted to do while you were laying shape, flat down on the ground. And then you would back out, you know, just like you've seen a lot of movies. So the, the concept that the king would pick you up and look at you right here as an equal, is just blowing the apostles' mind, or the disciples' mind at this point. That you're treated equal to God, that he's talking to you like a friend. Because you think of what the people of Israel did, you know, when God started talking to them, originally he talked to them off the mountain, straight. And they all, they go, we're afraid. Moses, Moses, you go up there and talk to him. Because if he keeps talking to us, we're going to die. And, you know, it's that concept of, you know, the most powerful person ever treats you like a friend. Mm-hmm. Anything else? I have some trouble mm-hmm. with the adjective humble. And Moses is very humble. That's a, that's a hard word to understand in action. What does that really mean? Anybody want to? <laughs> yeah, I mean it. It it is tough, and I think it. I think in some ways, this is not every the whole answer. It is an openness to being to doing things differently. I'm not right. I shouldn't assume that I'm right. 
and this is my this this is how I do it. But it's not necessarily the only way to do it, or the best way to do it. And a, a willingness to repent, as Jesus and often says, or change. Um, the real attitude of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, really lack. Yeah. I mean, that's that's why he was condemning them. They knew the law. They tried to keep the law, but they were called, you know, the white sepulchers, and that inside you're corrupt, and but on the outside you show yourself, you know, with these verses on your forehead and on your wrist and your garments that you know, hey, I'm keeping law, but yet, you know, they didn't have humility. They didn't have the right attitude. Right. Right. There is a there is. Right, there's an attitude and an action part to it for sure. It's not, it's not totally specific things you do or don't do, how you carry yourself and everything. Yeah. Because I see Moses as quite powerful. I mean, he was a leader, mm-hmm. and he was a judge. He decided who was right, who was wrong, and yet humble. I guess what, like you say, being able to say maybe I made a mistake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and you see a little bit, you know, that's the challenge with humility. Is he, it, it, you wonder how much confidence he grew in because early on, God says, you're my guy. And you're going to stand face to face with Pharaoh, who's not the Lord. But people think he's the Lord. No, you're face to face with me right now. And, the, you know, he's on the ground. You know, he takes his shoes off at the burning bush. But he doesn't think he's qualified to talk to Pharaoh face to face, either. And he didn't think I'm the wrong guy. There's there's all these reasons why I'm not the right guy. He's clearly is somewhat humble. I think from from that alone, that interaction, we take humility, but maybe it borders on not having confidence. Um, I think about like when his father-in-law told him when all the people were coming and he was judging mm-hmm. people with disputes and his father-in-law said you need to appoint people to help you men and da 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 and he did it mm-hmm. and argued with his father-in-law who was not a part of the group right yeah right he was not an so Israelite that to me shows an openness an openness to yeah. I mean he's not if you you know if anything it's a picture I mean that's a great example and it makes me think the contrast of the two leaders in, in Exodus. Pharaoh, stubborn, do what I'm doing, this is the only way to do it. God doing all these horrible, you know, horrific things to my people, not changing my mind. And his associate leaders are like, they even say, look at, look, our, we're being destroyed here. Our nation is going down because you won't change your mind. Maybe he is God. I, I think at one point in all the plagues, his people say, maybe he is the Lord. Right. And then, but you see Moses, who he's willing to change his mind. He's willing to shift, shift gears. And he's even willing, you know, and this is where it gets the, the where it's not just a clear picture. Uh, but then Moses will pretty stubbornly, with God, try to get God to change his mind. Don't destroy these people. I know they messed up, but don't destroy them. You know what? Destroy me before you take these people out. So even God is, you see a picture of God in the picture of Moses, a willingness to shift course somewhat, it seems. But he's very, he's very related and dependent on God. You know, he says, I can't, we can't 
can't go forward. We can't do this unless you will go with us. So mm -hmm. he really demonstrated his dependence on God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. Have great weeks.